Hello and welcome to a new season of You in the Ring, your weekly roundup of campus news and events. I am your host, Hugo Wong. It was an unusual first week welcome for students in CSC 349A, a computer science class at UVic, as a professor said that he was not prepared to teach the course. Ladies and gentlemen, I run that. The class is over, the class has been cancelled, and I kindly ask you to all leave at this point so we can deal with this okay? There has since been a change in instructor, and we'll be chatting with the Martlet about that. UVSS Board Turnover, Ben Luckenchuck, Director of Outreach and University Relations, and Sarah Maya Bandar, a director at large, resigned on Friday, and interim replacements were selected at a board meeting last night. We'll have Miles Sauer, Editor-in-Chief at The Martlet, and Cormac O'Brien, a Martlet reporter, to discuss their findings on both issues. A greater number of gender-inclusive bathrooms will soon be available on campus, not just in the Student Union Building. We'll talk with Grace Wong Snedden, Director of Academic Leadership Initiatives and Advisor to the Provost on Equity and Diversity for more. But first... If you're on campus during Welcome Week, chances are you saw a tent with a textbook broke banner. It's a new UVSS campaign designed to reduce the costs of textbooks for students. We've got Maxwell Nicholson, Director of Campaigns and Community Relations with the UVSS. For more, he joins us in studio. Hello, Maxwell. Good morning, Hugo. How's it going today? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Still waking up here from... (laughs) Same, same. uh, (laughs) So tell us a little bit about the campaign. Yeah, so the Textbook Broke campaign is a new campaign, as you mentioned, put on by the UVSS. It's actually a coalition between uh, UVic, SFU, and uh, the UBC student societies to really push back against some of the problems uh, in the textbook industry. Over the past 10 years, prices have risen four times the rate of inflation for textbooks, and uh, statistics like those really flag the the issue that the textbooks are not just a, the free market at play. It's not just a, the industry doing its thing. Uh, there is problems in the industry. There is practices that the publishers uh, are doing that students are very familiar with um, that, are, that are predatory, that are um, uh, hurting our, our ability to afford the textbooks and, and to afford an education. Mm-hmm. And in your outreach work, what kind, what have students been telling you about the issue? Yeah, so I think one of the things a lot of students resonate with is all the publishers' practices uh, to sort of squash the used textbook market. So when they shrink wrap a new textbook with a mandatory course code, uh, then students can't buy the used book. Or uh, when professors continually update, um, or sorry, when publishers continually update to to a new edition, um, this also becomes problematic. And uh, just seeing some of the numbers, uh, one of the parts of the campaign was our textbook broke contest uh, where students wrote the amount they spent on a whiteboard and seeing some of those numbers especially for some engineering students being upwards of 901 even even surpassing a thousand dollars people need to realize that the the textbook costs are, are a huge portion of 
of of the tuition and and of of the cost of of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anyone not up to speed, could you tell them about open education resources? Absolutely. So we just sent out a press release earlier um, this month about uh, an OER um, being adopted for for a physical geography class um, in in Lucinda's uh, class. And what an OER is is essentially an open online uh, free resource um, that professors can use. So professors will create this resource. It's high quality. It's peer reviewed um, by their peers for for open textbooks anyway. Uh, And and that can be used for for students free of charge. Uh, OERs encompass a lot more than just open textbooks. It includes when professors use TED Talks um, in their classrooms, when they they link to, say, articles in The Economist, Um, anything where they're using uh, what's open and, and available on the web. Uh, that that doesn't have to be like a publisher's resource uh, published under under like a a normal um, publishing license. Mm-hmm. And what have have you talked to professors about this? What have they been saying to you? Absolutely. So we've met with an, a lot of different professors just to to let them know about the open textbooks or or open resources available for their class. Um, and and a lot of them are. Uh, like like have not heard of it but but the ones once you start getting a conversation a lot of them are intrigued and and most of the times professors will be using some form of an oer in their course and this is just sort of an introduction to uh, a further oer so they may be using say like i mentioned like showing a ted talk in class and this is just an an oer like that Uh, i mean no one questions um the quality of some of these other oers and and to to show that that can be done on a larger larger market with textbooks is something that we're really trying to do with the campaign Mm-hmm. And have you found that uh, with OER, a lot of it is uh, first and second year books? Because I know that for uh, students later on in their undergrad, the class sizes are smaller. Those books are a little harder to find. Absolutely. So o- OERs, we're mainly pushing for for the really big first year, second year courses. Uh, those are the ones that the, the provincial government um, gives grants for professors to uh, produce these high quality OERs. And, and those are the ones that, that they're targeting. And as well, um, it, it does have a larger impact on the number of students in the courses. Uh, for students in third year, fourth year, for the more specialized courses, uh, for those, we're really directing our efforts towards the things like the bundling of with mandatory course access codes and updating to new editions because um, for some of these courses, especially uh, especially the first and second year courses, not a lot changes year to year. Uh, like Leibniz isn't coming back from the dead and changing his formula in, in calculus. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, for, for those ones, where we've definitely been making a lot of ground and, and getting a lot of traction um, with professors. Um, uh, in our in our meetings and, and conversations, mm-hmm. uh, and have you, you you mentioned talking to professors, talking to students? Have you talked to textbook publishers like like Pearson and the other really big companies? Yeah, th- that's a really good question. I personally haven't, but we're part of a a year of OER committee with um, uh, Janai Ar- Aragon of uh, of the. Um, Technology Integrated Learning, mm-hmm. uh, Imba at the Library, the, the Bookstore. Uh, so all, all of these uh, colleagues who are who are pushing forward this initiative have, uh, and they've given me a lot of insight as to, as to what they've been, uh, what the publishers have have said, and and. Let, let me in on those conversations, uh, and we will actually be having um, like a forum for for professors in in conjunction with the uh, Learning and Teaching Center to talk about OERs um, w- with some of these experts on, on campus. And um, I, I believe we're bringing in a publisher rep uh, for for that as well. But we have had the publisher reps at uh, at different meetings. I I just unfortunately wasn't able to attend, but definitely heard a lot from from my colleagues there. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I'm just thinking there is a a bit of an an oligopoly, it seems, with a lot of, Mm. you know, big publishers who've consolidated. I'm trying to think, you know, what kind of pressure can, you know, students or student societies exert on textbook manufacturers? Absolutely. So it's kind of an interesting industry because you do have, I think, four four to five to six publishers. The two that come to mind are are McRae and and Pearson. but it, it's, it doesn't operate like a traditional industry. So whereas a monopoly really does have a lot of the power to set prices because they're the only ones in the market, um, these ones also have the power to set prices But be, because the students aren't the ones that are making the choice of which textbook to buy. So a student doesn't get to choose between the Pearson or the McRae. It's, it's whatever the professor chooses. Uh, so what we're trying to do with our campaign is um, just talk to professors get affordability as a conversation on the table because there's been instances where a professor will change to a new resource, uh, not be be aware that the, the price of the textbook may be $100 more, uh, and then once they learn learn about that, the bookstore might call them up and say, hey, do you really want to increase the price of your, your resource by $100? Most of them will, will say no and, and go with the, the old resource. So uh, encouraging professors to to consider price uh, while they're prioritizing quality. Mm-hmm. And do ebooks at all play a factor into this? I noticed that with open education resources, sometimes it's like just covers the cost of printing, or sometimes it's, uh, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, open textbooks are uh, online. Uh, they are they are ebooks, but for the students who do want to get like a print copy, uh, they can get it print on demand um, from the bookstore. Because I, I think there are a lot of students who who don't want to. Who, who do want to get the, the paper and, and write their notes on it. I, I'm actually just switching to, to try out ebooks uh, now. I've always been sort of a paper copy. Um, but as, as for the conversation of ebooks in affordability, I think one of the difficult things uh, is that often publishers will, will just give temporary access to the ebook and, and then there's no resale market. So sometimes it's, for example, this this one class I'm taking, it's a hundred dollars for the ebook, or I could pay a hundred and fifty dollars for the textbook. So, depending on whether I'm confident that I can sell that new new textbook later on, it may actually be more affordable to get get the regular textbook. So, um, it sort of goes to show that a, a lot of the pricing pricing scheme is is very arbitrary in the market for sure. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, uh, used textbook sales. Uh, one of the things that I've found is that, you know, if you if you buy a book, I had to buy it, buy a lot of brand new books this year, when it comes time to sell them, sometimes, you know, you can only buy them for two or three, sell them for only two or three dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that that's really a reflection of, of when there's an updated edition. So w- when they updated edition, then you, the book that you bought is really doesn't have a lot of value anymore. That That's when you start getting only the $5 resale market. Uh, so one of the parts of our campaign is encouraging professors um, to really consider when they're updating an edition, whether it's a necessary necessary change, whether it's something they need to do, because uh, sometimes they won't realize that it costs students hundreds and, and thousands of dollars for, for not being able to resale sell their their used books and, and for other students not being able to purchase the cheaper used books. Mm-hmm. And do you see this initiative continuing, you know, there's in there, there's going to be an election coming up, you know, next, next year. And I realize it's a while away, yeah. uh, but do you see the campaign sort of continuing beyond your, your term? Uh, absolutely. So one of the goals of, of my campaigns this year is to create campaigns uh, that have strong partnerships, uh, both with, a, with the, people on campus with, with the, like I mentioned, the library, the bookstore, and, and also for our Rethink Mental Health campaign with, with Student Affairs and, and 
uh, as I mentioned before, with other universities uh, and creating those strong partnerships so that um, if the person who's in my position next year wants to continue on, uh, they have the framework for it. They have the the support they need from from these experts um, on the topics and uh, I've definitely been using the Let's Get Consensual campaign as a model for some of my campaigns because that's one that's been passed over board term after board term I can't remember if it's third or fourth year now Uh, but it is a huge capacity problem when you have a new board and they have to create these new campaigns. I mean, you're creating a new brand, you're creating a new strategy. Um, and so I, I definitely have tried to keep keep the campaigns uh, uh, on on topics that are, are really um, uh, pre- prevalent for students and, and uh, so that they can, can be continued um, regardless of, of former or, uh, sorry, future, future mm-hmm. boards. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Th- thoughts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Maxwell, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Maxwell Nicholson is the Director of Campaigns and Community Relations with the UVSS. And now a song Vancouver musician Graf Titian plays with LL and Old Girl at Vinyl Envy on Friday, September 23rd. The show is at 8. Tickets are at the door. And if you can't make it to the show, Graf Titian is playing a live set on CFUV for Basement Closet Sessions on Friday at 3 p.m. This is Colorblind from Graftitian's album Wonderweave. He says he's colorblind, but he sees shades and shadows of yous and me. Was a pattern painted to please Wherever holding a fold in the seams Nobody's colorblind So we'll see who your people really can be If he says he's colorblind Well, I feel he's painting shadows all over me And take a trip on this exotic bench And you all would you keep and take a spin on this exotic thing and who cares what it means not not the girl in your mirror the one with the golden hair i never cared but you do never cared but you do never cared Never cared, 
But you do never care, but you do never care. That was Colorblind from Graftitian's album Wanderweave. Uh, some other headlines here. Uh, CBC reports that a court sided with a student who said police did not have the right to search his backpack. The student is only known as E.S. and was ticketed last September for being a minor in unlawful possession of liquor after police searched him because he had a backpack with a boxy outline. And the student represented himself in court. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes from the judge's decision. Quote, E.S. was on the grounds of a university where, from my own experience and from living only a few blocks from the University of Victoria, it is a very common occurrence for students to be wearing or carrying a backpack. End quote. Astute. The Times colonist Jeff Bell reports that a person that was arrested September 11th after allegedly masturbating in front of a woman on the UVic campus has been arrested again. Sandwich Police Acting Sergeant Jerem Leslie said the second arrest happened Saturday after an incident at 4.30 p.m. A woman was jogging in the area of Cadborough Bay and Lauder Roads and had her buttocks grabbed by a male who approached on a bicycle and fled. Police are recommending a charge of sexual assault and one charge of the breach of an undertaking given by a judge or justice. Author and UVic alum W.P. Kinsella died on September 16th after choosing an assisted death under new Canadian law. He's best known for writing Shoeless Joe, which was later adapted into the movie Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. He graduated from UVic with a creative writing degree in 1974, and there will be no memorial. Finally, Dr. Marshall Aguay, a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics, died Wednesday after a short illness. In an email, Math and Stats Department Chair Rod Edwards said, he was an excellent mathematician and a much-appreciated instructor. He will be sorely missed by the math and stats department, his family, and his friends. Edwards said a more formal statement will be released soon. Now, the University of Victoria is taking steps to make gender-inclusive bathrooms available across campus. New signs are being added to single-stall bathrooms to this end. New signs will also advertise what facilities are in each bathroom. Grace Wong Sneddon is Director, Academic Leadership Initiatives, and Advisor to the Provost on Equity and Diversity. She joins me in the studio. Dr. Sneddon, thanks for joining me today. Very pleased to be here. Now, could you give us a sense of how many gender-inclusive bathrooms will be available on campus? We are actually including all single-stall washrooms, and there should be one in every single building on our campus. Mm -hmm. And how big of an undertaking is it for the university to adapt the single-stall bathrooms to gender-inclusive facilities? Uh, facilities have been working on this throughout the whole summer. Uh, they're very 
very keen to support this initiative and have been very instrumental in um, moving this this program forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. When the Student Union Building uh, unveiled its gender-inclusive bathrooms in 2012, I understand that they were a first at a university on Vancouver Island. And did that influence policy for the rest of the university? The feedback we got from uh, the one in the sub have been so positive that we were interested in supporting that initiative. And, and looking across at other institutions across Canada, we wanted to be aligned with how uh, this whole initiative going forward, and that's that's one of the reasons why we've, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, we wanted to be responsive to the needs of our diverse campus community, and clearly, uh, the washroom in the sub was the first initiative. Mm-hmm. And uh, who would you say would benefit from these kinds of changes? I think everyone on campus will benefit from the changes. Uh, in, in a sense, we're looking at the concept. It's not a new one, but we're looking at it as more of a universal design. And universal design means that it provides more accessibility and flexibility in environments for everyone. And that's what we're hoping to do with the with the change in the our single stall um, gender inclusive washrooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I notice here in the press release that some single stall washrooms are currently identified with dual stick figures as gender inclusive. And there's a little something about uh, universal symbols. Yes. So uh, uh, you're probably very um, current on some of the different symbols going across. And, and so in a sense, we're trying to uh, consult widely. So we're using ones that are, are appropriate. And we look to our um, new chair of transgender studies, Dr. Aaron Dwar, for, for his leadership on this as well as uh, student affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of uh, you know groups and individuals have you been talking to when it comes to uh, generating uh, protocol process, bringing this uh, bring this initiative forward? So uh, our uh, AVP Student Affairs Jim Denston and uh, have been meeting with a number of uh, folks in the sub advocacy groups um, and asking for their input and feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, of course. Um, facilities and, and other groups like uh, Dr. Dewar, uh, Equity and Human Rights Office, uh, my office as well. But we want to um, consult extensively. And, and so in a sense, this is a pilot project hoping for more input and feedback from our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and could you describe how else the university is uh, working with the transgender community? For instance, do you know UVic teaching staff, counselors, do they have uh, training regarding this kind of issue? Names, yes, yes pronouns, absolutely. My understanding is counseling is already involved in getting some training uh, to work um, more inclusively with uh, transgender communities. Uh, at the same time, um, we have a new um, revamped office in student affairs called um, Student Life. Mm-hmm. And that will actually include some uh, research and training uh, for faculty and staff on transgender uh, qu- questions and issues that come forward on how to better be a support. Mm-hmm. And uh, has the university encountered any challenges when it comes to, to making these, these changes or even determining what kind of changes need to be made? Well, determining changes is always uh, a challenge because things change, right? Uh, mm-hmm. we, we need to be responsive. And, and so, um, 
and we have to create a forum that we can hear all voices, and that's always been challenging. But certainly from faculty and staff, uh, there have been a huge interest to do more learning. In fact, they're, they're breaking down uh, laws asking for training, and we're just, we're trying hard to respond to it. But, um, and that's the reason why we've, um, we're working with some transgender students as a, as a beginning step for the research and the consultation. Mm -hmm. And when do you expect uh, this, uh, this change to be complete? Oh, I don't expect things change to be complete. It's always a process. Mm -hmm. But we hope to be able to offer training in the spring. Okay. Uh, and uh, for the, the signage change? Uh, oh, the signage change. Well, we're going to um, pilot this now. We're expecting that we'll have feedback. Uh, folks will be, uh, according to facilities, um, getting feedback about usage uh, of uh, environment is uh, very easier. And so that we will be expecting that we'll be hearing how some of the how responsive these changes are, and we will adapt to make it work better. I mean that's that's what we're trying we're trying it to see if it's working if it's really responding to the needs of our campus community. If the wait lines are too long for um, folks with disabilities, and we want to know about that. Um, what I understand is that sometimes. Um, the single-style washrooms are used more as a respite mm -hmm. room and uh, and so we do have three respite rooms one is in the sub in B106 one is in McPherson library in room 132 the other one is in the law library room 258 we want to to make sure we advertise these widely so they are used as a respite rooms that washrooms is not the best place for a respite room and if three respite rooms are not enough then the university needs to think about expanding and having more rooms. That's what we want to be able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and where can students expect that that pilot that pilot bathroom to be? Has that been yet to be determined? Or? Uh, no, no, no. So we've got all these signs, and if they're not working, if people are using the accessing the washrooms and they're not working, like it's too long, it, it's um, uh, they're not kept oh, okay. up. Then we want to know about that. And then we will start to look at other okay, venues, so, so maybe multi-stall or uh, other places. Okay, so the, the single-stall washrooms will be, they'll all be unveiled at, at once, sort of? Yes, yes. So all the sign will be up at the same time. And in fact, when we we did a, I think there was an article in, I, I guess it's in the ring, that highlighted that. And in fact, we had folks who said, gee, are our bathroom? Do we have signs for our for our building? So we actually had phone calls about that. So mm -hmm. I think the whole campus community is behind this initiative. Grace Wong Sneddon is advisor to the provost on equity and diversity. She was speaking to me about gender inclusive bathrooms on campus. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Next up, we have joining us in the studio Meg Newfell from the Anti Violence Project. Hello, Meg. <laughs> uh, so for those unfamiliar, could you give uh, listeners an overview of what you do and what AVP does? Mm -hmm, yeah, so um, the Anti-Violence Project is the sexual assault center on campus. So we do lots of different things, um, but we provide support for survivors. Um, we also provide support for friends of survivors or family. And we also provide support for people who have caused harm. Um, but we also do a lot of prevention-based work, so that's um, running workshops, doing outreach events, 
um, and different things like that. Um, and I'm the education coordinator at the Anti-Violence Project. So um, I train facilitators and run a few of our workshops. Okay. Um, and could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what's coming up? Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing I'm really excited about at the end of the month, which actually next week, <laughs> yeah. um, Farah Khan is coming to talk or do a talk at UVic um, called We Be- Begin by Listening. Um, so this is tied into our theme of We Believe Survivors. Um, so Farah Khan's really awesome. Um, she's she's located in Toronto right now, um, and she was the co-creator of the hashtag We Believe Survivors and the co-chair of the Ontario Roundtable on Violence Against Women, and also an advisory council member of the of Canada's federal strategy against gender-based violence. Um, and she's also been part of lots of really rad. Uh, was it called <laughs> um, like community um, organizing against gender-based violence? Um, so we're really excited to hear her speak. And it's free for students if you show your ID card. Um, Where and when will that be happening? Right. Great question. Um, it's on the 28th um, of September um, at 6.30 p.m. at the UVic Farquhar Auditorium. And do you know if there'll be, uh, uh, if students can ask questions or, or meet her, anything quite like that? Mm, that's a really great question, and I'm not sure I have the answer to. Um, but as another plug, there's going to be some poetry before, the sh- um, like at the beginning before she speaks. So Jeremy Loveday and the Youth po- mm. Poet Laureate is also going to be performing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in terms of other things that AVP does, I understand that, uh, you know, you do consent workshops. What can people expect if they were to attend? Hmm. Um, well, at a consent workshop, it's about two hours long, and we talk about um, a variety of different things, but mostly um, we talk about why we need consent, um, what consent looks like, how you can practice it, the different sort of ways to practice it, and also just to look at um, why sexualized violence occurs in our culture at such a high rate. Um, so just exploring different parts of that and ways that we can push back against that culture in our everyday lives so we can start to dismantle rape culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when can people expect the next one? Mm, the next one is the 26th of September. Um, so coming up really soon and you can register online. Um, but there's one every three weeks offered and you can find more out on our website, um, which is antiviolenceproject.org. Um, in terms of you know support when, when people come in, uh, you know, what do you... What are some of the ways in which AVP, you know, supports people who, mm. who come in? Mm. Well, the most important thing is believing someone. Um, and so if you come into our space, you're going to be believed. Um, but really what we do is we offer a place to listen. Sexualized violence so often is about taking power away from people. And um, when you come into our space, you're going to be able to take the lead in um, what happens and what you talk about. We're not going to force you to report. We're not going to... Um, take you to counseling if you don't want to. Um, it's all about whatever the survivor needs. And so we have some tea um, and we have nice couches to sit on and it's just about whatever that person needs and we're just there to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where can people find AVP or find out any more information if they're interested? Mm-hmm. Okay, so physically you can find us in the basement of the Student Union Building. Um, we're in B027, which is right at the end of the hall by all the advocacy groups. Um, and in terms of other places, we're online at antiviolenceproject.org. We're also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So there's lots of places you can find us. That's great. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Meg is the education coordinator at AVP. Here at CFUV, we love live performances, and we're willing to bet you do too. 
Not only can you hear bands performing live on air every Friday from 3 to 4 p.m., you can download and listen to podcasts of these performances anywhere you want. Visit us on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com CFUV for previous performances and check out our Basement Closet sessions every Friday for new live jams. We're now joined in studio by uh, two folks from the Martlet, Miles Sauer, Editor-in-Chief, and Cormac O'Brien, a reporter. Good morning, all. Howdy. Hi, Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Um, so it's been a, a pretty pretty busy time over there, I can imagine. Yeah, totally. Like, um, super busy. Yeah. Well, today's production day, too, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, Cormac, why don't I start with, uh, with you? So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been working on. Well, I've been working on a story uh, that developed over the engineering building in the computer science department. Uh, last Wednesday, on the first day of classes, uh, Professor Jianping Pan, who's a computer science professor at UVic, uh, came into class, and the first thing he kind of said to students was, hey, guys, just so you know, I don't feel like I'm qualified to teach this course. Uh, students were obviously a little confused and uh, a little upset, so they emailed the department, and uh, things kind of escalated from there. Uh, they took Dr. Pan off of the teaching list. Uh, however... By not informing Dr. Pan who the replacement professor was or when the replacement professor was going to begin teaching, uh, Dr. Pan showed up again on Friday, uh, and eventually the administration tried to get him to to leave the classroom and and, uh, eventually ended up calling the police and campus security as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, have there been any new developments since this happened? Because this was around like the first week of school, right? Right. So was that two weeks ago or last week? It was two weeks ago. Wow, two weeks ago. Okay. It's been a very busy week, Hugo. I I can imagine. Uh, there's not been too much developments. Both sides have been kind of quiet on this. We've only been kind of getting limited email correspondence from Dr. Pan and the university have been pretty tight-lipped on things as well. Uh, we do have a couple kind of select quotes from Dr. Pan that we're going to be running in the market that comes out on Thursday that basically just kind of clarify his position and uh, again makes the uh, kind of makes the accusation that he had informed the uh, the university of his concerns before he started teaching, but that the university either didn't take the concerns seriously or uh, just kind of ignored them completely. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the one of the issues with this that I can see is kind of uh, academic freedom versus private discussion. You get, um, you know, at UBC, really, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, Jennifer Bedall at UBC was speculating on uh, the firing of uh, the UBC president at mm-hmm. the time, Arvind Gupta, and there was kind of a big kerfuffle about that. Do you see any differences, or have you talked to people, sort of, you know, what the differences uh, differences are between, say, that incident and what happened here? Well, I think probably the average computer science student at UVic may not be too aware of that kind of greater discussion. Um, But I think if you ask the students, uh, you know, whether or not he was within his rights to kind of bring this out to the student populace, um, I think a lot of students are kind of happy that he did. Um, For those who think, you know, for those who kind of disagree with the position he took, that's probably the greatest criticism that's that's come against him is that... uh, you know, this is a private matter, this is a, you know, a faculty matter, you shouldn't be involving your students in this. And, you know, I, I kind of sympathize with them to that regard. But at the same time, and again, you could probably say the same thing for the for the UBC. Well, I guess the difference would be that, I mean, does the UBC, uh, you know, the, that UBC case that you mentioned, does that directly affect students? And I think this case probably affects them more. This is a professor saying, you know, just so you know, I am coming into this room and you know, the way I have been prepared or underprepared coming into this classroom is going to directly affect you and the money that you paid to be in this classroom. Whereas I think speculation on uh, on the president maybe doesn't have uh, that direct much of an effect. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned that uh, both sides haven't really said uh, uh, said too, too much about what's happening uh what's happening now um but do you have any sense of you know where uh, where dr pan is uh, in the disciplinary process or if he's even uh, in that process at all well he had a meeting uh which would have been a week ago last monday uh, a disciplinary hearing a hearing sorry investigation something like that something like that yeah. it's again pretty <laughs> foggy because both sides are very you know very very reluctant to say anything about it uh, i think i believe at the moment he's suspended Sorry, I shouldn't say suspended. They got mad at us for saying suspended. At the moment, he's on pay, uh, leave with pay, I believe. Uh, I think he's still in contact with students around the university. He's still helping with certain research proposals and things like that. He's definitely not teaching the computer science course anymore. But uh, but beyond that, I, I'm you know he's still on campus. He's still around. Uh, but I would imagine that the disciplinary process is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you spoken to to students, uh, you know, about this? And what what kind of reaction have has have they been having? Like I kind of mentioned before, I think a lot of students are happy that he did bring this up. I think, uh, you know, this is kind of coming just personally, but I think a lot of students are a little concerned that this has been the case in other of you know other classrooms and other you know other courses that they've taken. In that, uh, you know, professors sometimes aren't uh, experts in. The classes that are teaching they may be wider experts in the field but when it comes to the you know the intricacies and the complexities of the specific courses offer uh it's difficult to find a professor that's going to be you know knowledgeable for every single one so but then again you know but students probably have the right to to complain if that's the case and i say i think yeah the majority of students are wondering and kind of hoping that this isn't the case you know wider across the board mm-hmm. and have you uh had any communications from like within the computer science department because it seems like this original kerfuffle started like between dr pan and and the chair and the dean and people people within that that group uh, i personally haven't miles i don't know if you have um i i won't name who i spoke with but somebody came up at clubs and course union days last week and said that this incident with uh pan is uh, their words were the tip of the iceberg um, regarding issues over in that department. And obviously it's not something we've really had the chance to look into thoroughly. But if uh, I've also I've heard that from other people as well, kind of similar sentiments that um, this sort of thing happens over at the computer science department. We've spoken to grads and, you know, people who have worked in and around the office and maybe don't work there anymore. And I think, again, their sentiments kind of reflect those of PANS that oftentimes professors are kind of forced into situations that they may be best to be left out of in terms of teaching courses and, you know, qualifications and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine if uh, anyone has any new information, they are uh, welcome to contact you. Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, Miles, let's move over to you. What kind of, uh, where were you last night? Tell us about <laughs> I was at the UVSS board of directors meeting as I always am. Mm-hmm. And I went in kind of expecting things to go rather quickly and smoothly because I knew they were going to be electing an interim director to replace uh, Ben Lukanchuk, who resigned last week. Um, but that was all uh, preceded by a significant discussion around ratifying a club, an established club here on campus, the University Christian Ministries. And when it came time to, and sorry if I'm just going off now, but um they were to be ratified alongside 127 other clubs, I think, with a certain amount of funding. And concerns were raised that uh, 
they were they've been homophobic in the past transphobic in the past just generally kind of harmful in how they practice and so there is significant debate around whether or not the board should ratify the club or not whether or not the club should come in and give a presentation um all kinds of things and it took quite a lot of time uh and uh what did they decide in the end in the end the club was ratified and they will be asking the club to come in and kind of give a presentation to address concerns around the club and also their ties to kind of the parent organization just because um one of the board members has had kind of experiences with the club that were kind of harmful and so they want those addressed but they couldn't uh find grounds to not ratify the club right now mm-hmm. and uh have has the club you know said anything have you had any uh, interactions with them about this not yet no this is all very recent i didn't think it was going to be an issue yesterday um and like I may have already said, the club is an established club. They've been here before. And mm-hmm. as far as I know, I've never heard anything about them that's been um, negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what happened after? What happened after the club was ratified? Yeah. Uh, there was, well, there's two things that happened after. There was a motion afterwards to ratify a number of clubs without funding. One of them being the University Bible Fellowship, who we've reported on kind of having some ties with a larger organization that's been accused of some sketchy, um, the word we used was cult-like activities. And so I thought that would kind of inspire some discussions similar to what the University Christian Ministries Club did, but uh, they got ratified without any discussion at all. And then after that, um, the board elected Alicia Flipsy to fill the position left by Ben Luke and Chuck. And she was one of three nominees, uh, the other two being Kate Fairley and Michelle Brown, all three directors at large. And I understand that that vote was uh, protracted and quite close. Yeah, it was. Um, The first vote, so any nominee, any candidate had to receive a majority of votes. And so in this case, that was 11. Um, In the first vote, uh, Flipsy, I think, had slightly less than Kate Fairley, Michelle uh, had the least of all of them, but none of them had a majority. And so it went to a second round where uh, Alicia had 10 votes, Kate Fairley had nine, and Michelle had one. So still super close, not a majority. And uh, finally, in the third round of voting, um, Alicia had a majority of 11 votes. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any, any understanding of um, why uh, the resignations happened? Um, as far as I know... This is just based on what uh, communication I've had with other UVSS execs. Uh, ben Lukenchuk had a family emergency that demanded he return to Calgary. Uh, that's where he's originally from. And so he resigned Friday morning in an email to the board, I think, um, effective immediately. And that was it. And those are all the details that we've gotten so far. So there hasn't really been anything to make me suspect there's anything else there. But mm-hmm. obviously, if we hear something... Mm-hmm. Uh, and was there uh, was there anything else that happened at that meeting of note? Uh, honestly, by the time Alicia was ratified, I had been there for about four hours, and there were still uh, quite a number of motions afterwards. And I um, decided to leave because I kind of got the story that I came for. But other motions on 
for the rest of the meeting included uh, whether or not the board would undergo mandatory anti-trans misogyny training. Um, there are some concerns raised on the part of the Trans Feminine Caucus by the UVic Pride rep. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't actually find out if that went through or not. But, oh, and one of the other motions was um, having the board draft a public response to some of the things going on in the sub around uh, trans-exclusionary uh, radical feminists and that sort of stuff, that controversy that's been brewing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was there any anything else in the Martlet of, uh, of note this week that people can expect? Um. We got a great guide to baseball for beginners. Um, mm -hmm. As far as like news mm -hmm. controversy stuff goes, there's not too much. Um, anything else? It doesn't even have to be, doesn't have to be juicy, juicy else? news or anything like that. Uh, oh, good question. We have an interview we ran ahead of Rifflandia with Michael Franti and Spearhead. He's quite an elegant interviewer, actually. Hmm. Um, uh, do you have, what else is in there? Do I you have a know. feature for? Uh, uh, we do not have a feature of this issue. Um, mm -hmm. Too much news. Yeah, too yeah. much news. Too much on. news. But if anybody's listening and ever wants to write us a feature story, we're always looking for them. So that's my plug. <laughs> <laughs> write us something long. <laughs> All right. Uh, and we're going to have to leave it there. Miles Sauer is the editor in chief of the Martlet. Cormac O'Brien is a Martlet reporter. Miles Cormac, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Hugo. Cheers. Let's go over some other events that will be happening soon. The Making Early Middle English Conference runs from September 23rd to 25th. The conference explores the literary and cultural history of the time. There are around 50 presenters who will give talks on their research. There will also be a gallery of manuscript materials held at UVic. To register, visit their website, hcmc.uvic.ca slash makingeme. Check out the International Opportunities Fair today. That's September 20th. The event features international opportunities as offered through UVic, like exchange, field schools, and co-op. It starts at 11 a.m. in the University Center lobby, upper level, so uh, right after the show, actually. Uh, I might be there myself. The Latin American and Spanish Film Week runs all week at Cinecenta, Tonight, you can check out Mahayanas, a film centered on an aged Peruvian taxi driver. The story explores a terrible secret and its long-term effects on the lives of two people. And as a side note, I did watch the trailer, and it is, it is action-packed. Uh, the Film Week is organized by the Hispanic Film Society of Victoria, and all films have English subtitles. Finally, the Anthropology Graduate Colloquia will take place Monday, September 26th. The Colloquium is a lecture series which presents current research in anthropology. The speakers are local and international researchers, as well as the department's current PhD candidates. It will take place in room A229 of the Cornet Building from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Everyone is welcome.